the Republican Party has become a monolith. First it became an ideological monolith, and now it has been taken over by Donald Trump, and it is a personal monolith. That's Jeffrey Cabaservice, widely read historian and columnist on the modern Republican Party and U.S. politics. We'll get his 2020 post-election analysis today. A state like California is run top to bottom by Democrats, and evidence suggests that they really fall short in a lot of important areas. It would be fantastic if there was a third party or a sane Republican party offering up real policies to the problems of homelessness, to the problems of water usage, to the problems of overly high rents, which force so many people out of the state. Dr. Cabaservice is Director of Policy Studies at the Niskanen Center, a centrist think tank in Washington, D.C. He'll give us his independent-minded take on polarization between and within the parties. You're listening to The Purple Principle. I'm Robert Pease. And I'm Emily Corsetti. And for listeners of my generation, it may come as a bit of a surprise. But as recently as the 1960s and 70s, the Republican Party, with apologies to elephants was a very different animal than today. Sure, there was a strong conservative faction in the Republican Party, personified by Barry Goldwater, the 1964 nominee for president. I would remind you that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. And let me remind you also that moderation And the pursuit of justice is no virtue. But there was also a vibrant moderate wing, represented by George Romney, father of Mitt Romney. Too many do not really believe and practice the belief that each American is endowed by his creator with the same inalienable rights and must have equal opportunity for self-development and participation in a truly open society as well as Nelson Rockefeller, who made this speech against racism at the 1968 Republican convention, to a mixed response. It is essential that this convention repudiate here and now any doctrine, any doctrinaire militant minority, whether communist, Ku Klux Klan, or Bircher. We don't need to tell you, our indie-minded listeners, that polarization is a huge factor in all our problems in the U.S. Please stay with us for some deep insights into how we became so polarized. Starting with Dr. Cabaservice updating his critically acclaimed history of the decline of moderate Republicans, entitled Rule and Ruin, published by Oxford Press. Well, I was writing about the decline of moderation in the Republican Party. Moderates actually used to be a sizable, indeed, and sometimes a dominant faction within that party. But really, since the 1970s, the moderate faction has been dwindling, and now I would say it's almost non-existent. So in that sense, there wasn't much of a need to update the book. What obviously I didn't foresee was the rise of Donald Trump. But in some ways, I haven't been all that surprised by Trump's rise, because what I saw in the Republican Party with moderation absent was an ever harder line on ideology to the point where it actually couldn't offer or respond to actual problems. It was an ideology that in a way had disabled itself when it came to dealing with the issues that its constituents faced. So do you think it's no longer helpful to view U.S. politics 
through the lens of factions such as moderates versus conservatives or centrists versus progressives? Well, you know, I think that both the conservative Democratic faction and the moderate Republican faction have been badly squeezed in recent years. So certainly uh, it makes less sense to talk about factions within the party these days, given how many votes are on the party lines. On the other hand, I think Americans are still factional. I think there's still quite a lot of people in the exhausted majority, to use uh, a phrase that's come up in recent years. And I think it would make much more sense to talk about people in terms of being moderate, Republicans, stalwarts, even different kinds of conservatives. And it would make equal sense to talk about that on the Democratic side. So then when did moderate Republicanism begin disappearing from the Republican Party? Well, moderate Republicanism took a nasty hit in 1964 when Barry Goldwater, the very conservative Arizona senator, became the GOP presidential nominee. That extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. And that was significant, not just because a conservative for the first time seized the nomination, but also because Barry Goldwater was one of the few Republican legislators in Congress to vote against the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And that had longstanding and permanent repercussions. It meant that African-American votes for the Republican Party, which had been about 40% of the total African-American vote in 1956 under Dwight Eisenhower, and even 33% under Richard Nixon, fell to single digits and has never really recovered. The problem was that the conservative faction gained strength with every passing year in the Republican Party after 1970 or thereabouts. Richard Nixon really took the party in a much more populist direction after 1970. To you, the great silent majority of my fellow Americans, I ask for your support. For the more and life became more difficult for them after Ronald Reagan became elected in 1980, although Reagan himself was enough of a pragmatist that he understood there was a need for moderates in the GOP Big Tent coalition. From my view of government, places trust not in one person or one party, but in those values that transcend persons and parties. But really, these problems became worse with Newt Gingrich in the 1994 election. Now I recognize, sadly, that the Washington press corps is all too often the Praetorian Guard of the left. But, but it tells you something. It tells you something about how out of touch they are with the American people. And moderates have really been marginalized in the party at this point. Well, let's drill down a little further on that. Why are moderate voices in Congress disappearing when there's still a lot of purple states and districts out there? Well, the wisdom in Congress used to be that members of each party were allowed to vote their district. And there was an understanding that if you were Republican who represented an urban or suburban area, you would be voting somewhat differently than a Republican who represented a very rural area. Likewise, if you're in a moderate battleground, you would be given a pass by the leadership when it came to some votes. And as you know, gerrymandering has become a big issue. And there are very few competitive districts in any given election year at this point, whereas there used to be many. And this is why the parties have really separated. The most liberal Republican, and I use that word in quotes, is considerably more conservative than the most conservative Democrat. And so there's really a real division 
It's a division in just about every way you can imagine. And from your perspective, then, why is it that so few Republicans, moderate or conservative, have been willing to publicly disagree with President Trump over the past four years? As I mentioned earlier, the Republican Party has become largely a white working class party. And this is a group of people who have not done well over the last several decades. These are people who have not benefited from globalization, who indeed have seen their fortunes decline. And these are people who really felt and were marginalized by both parties. There simply was not a lot of attention given to their perspective, their interests by either party. And Donald Trump was the first candidate who came along who really was not a candidate of the status quo, who was speaking for this Republican base. You know, when they talk about, they talk about the elite, the elite. Do you ever see the elite? They're not elite. You're the elite. You are the elite. So it's very understandable that they are going to be loyal to that person, even though he really hasn't done much for them and indeed has hurt their interests in many ways. You mentioned Newt Gingrich, who's obviously a conservative today, but he was actually more of a moderate before he became Speaker of the House and actually shocked his House colleagues when he adopted what's called his scorched earth policy. Do you see Newt Gingrich as a precursor to Trump? Uh, In many ways, Newt Gingrich is a precursor to Trump. And it is ironic, as you mentioned, because Newt Gingrich was not just a moderate Republican, but arguably a liberal Republican. He actually was a delegate for Nelson Rockefeller at the 1968 Republican convention. But Gingrich did see the direction that polarization was taking, the way in which the country was ripe for somebody to step into that role of dividing the parties and knocking down Congress as an institution. And that's what he did. The problem is, if you're a welfare state liberal, and you don't know how to do that in Washington or Atlanta, (laughs) you can't very well decide that it is your mission in Somalia to create the small businesses you're killing in America. There's that famous memo from Frank Luntz where uh, Republicans are instructed by Gingrich to describe Democrats and their ways in terms of treachery and sick and ill and all, all that sort of thing. Obviously, that's had a major negative impact on our politics. But I do kind of believe that if Gingrich hadn't done that, somebody else would have because that was the direction the country already was moving in. So, Emily, a lot to unpack there from Jeff Cabaservice on the historical turning points here, such as the surprising Goldwater nomination for president back in 1964. And then the steady decline of moderate Republicans like Nelson Rockefeller, George Romney, and others. Which signaled and also shaped big changes in the Republican voter base. And made possible the scorched earth tactics of Newt Gingrich in the 1994 midterms. This election radically changed the tone of congressional politics. It tells you something about how out of touch they are with the American people. We learned something about that from the Georgetown neuropsychologist, Abigail Marsh, in our Heard from the Herd episode. You know, I really think that contact hypothesis is really all what it comes down to. And it's one of the oldest theories in psychology, which is that just contact with people who are different from yourself, especially in a non- antagonistic setting is a great way to heal these divides. And one of the reasons that for the current political divide relates to changes that Newt Gingrich made to the way Congress works decades ago, where 
you know, he changed the length of the congressional work weeks so that Congress people could go back to their home districts over the weekends. And then it turned out their families didn't move to DC. They didn't hang out socially together in DC anymore. And so people that used to have these friendships across different political differences stopped having those friendships. Which brings us to party polarization today in 2020. Most of the election is now behind us. The Republican Party has lost the White House, but done better than expected at virtually every other level, though the Senate still hangs in the balance until the Georgia runoffs. I spoke to Jeff Cabaservice about what he found most surprising and significant about the 2020 elections. So uh, I'm speaking to you on November 24th of 2020, and of course all kinds of crazy things could happen in the future. And, you know, I suppose the surprising thing was that it came to this point in the first place. For the entirety of our republic's existence, there has been a more or less peaceful and expeditious transition of power from a defeated administration to the incoming administration. And in this case, Trump resisted. He did not concede. He probably will never concede. But he attempted to use the power of the presidency to overturn the democratic outcome of the election. And perhaps what's most astonishing is that the vast majority of the Republican Party went along with this attempt to, in effect, overthrow the republic. So here we are. So, yes, certainly, historically, we're all surprised the way the outcome was contested. But on the other hand, wasn't there a fair amount of signaling pretty far back, even in 2016, that Trump would never accept a defeat? That I will totally accept the results of this great and historic presidential election if I win. Yes, um, Trump did, in fact, say that he would not accept the 2016 outcome unless he won, which he did. So, you know, Trump is Trump. Trump has always been Trump. But again, I think what's different is that if Hillary had won convincingly by anything approaching the margins by which Joe Biden won in this election, you know, Trump may well have said, no, I really won, but no one would have gone along with him. Okay, but this is confusing to our listeners who are primarily independents and don't really understand how you can be so loyal to a party. The leader of the Republican Party, in this case, Donald Trump, has lost and would seem to be a weakened figure. Why are so many Republicans in office staying loyal to someone who just lost re-election? Well, I would challenge one of the premises that you put forward there. I think this is actually a case where the vast majority of the Republican Party is being loyal to the individual of Donald Trump rather than to the party as such. And the fear among Republican legislators certainly has been that if they were to come out and openly say that Trump has lost the election, that he should concede, that this would turn the party faithful against them and their political careers would be over. It's extraordinary, really, and I think largely unprecedented in American history that Donald Trump has taken ownership of the Republican Party in this way, such that the party has no real independent existence outside of his candidacy and presidency. What are the levers of control, though? It would seem the great concern traditionally has been avoiding primary battles, but many of these people don't have to think about primaries for years the president's just been defeated. He's 73. How are they maintaining this loyalty? 
you know, I wrote a piece for the Washington Post not too long ago where I looked back at the 1964 election and Barry Goldwater was the Republican nominee. This was the first time that a movement conservative had become the party's presidential nominee. And there was a lot of resistance to him. Uh, In fact, there was even an attempt by Pennsylvania Governor William Scranton to challenge his nomination at the convention. I reject the echo we have thus far been handed, the echo of fear and of reaction, the echo from the never-never land that puts our nation on the road backward to a lesser place in the world of free men. But the party back in the 1960s was very much of a factional party, as most American parties traditionally had been, and as the Democratic Party arguably is still today. That is to say, it was a party that represented coalitions of interest, geographic, ideological, sectoral, uh, you can kind of go down the list. The Republican Party has become a monolith. First, it became an ideological monolith, and now it has been taken over by Donald Trump, and it is a personal monolith. Okay, but what about the moderate Republican governors who actually handled COVID relatively well? Not that anyone handled it really well, but I'm thinking about governors Sununu, Scott, Baker, Hogan, Republican governors mostly in the Northeast who were very science-based. Why do they get so little mention within the Republican Party and the media? Warning about the fall coronavirus surge, which is raging across the country. Um, some of the more non-essential personnel or personnel doing jobs and tasks that are temp- going to be put temporarily on hold are going to be uh, moved around. Whether but the reason we're taking this so seriously is because of it is it is incredibly contagious. It's a lot you know, um, the governors historically have been the most moderate segment of the Republican Party because they represent states that include within them a wide diversity of voters and interests. They typically will include both rural and urban and suburban interests. They will have the need to balance a budget, which means they have to get agreement from all kinds of people within their state legislatures. They deal with the day-to-day problems of people. So no, it's not a surprise to me that a number of the Republican governors have distinguished themselves in generally being pretty capable in their approach to the pandemic. Let's turn to the right-wing media then for a minute. It almost seems that the mask issue was initially polarized by right-wing media and then taken up by Trump. If you look back at early reactions from people like Rush Limbaugh and some hosts on Fox, do you think media really drives our politics more than we know? Now, I want to tell you the truth about the coronavirus. The coronavirus is, is, is the common cold. It is absolutely disgusting that Democrats are seeking to use this complex virus to score cheap political points. Call out anyone and everyone who's using this virus as a political weapon against the talk about coronavirus being so much more deadly doesn't reflect reality. I think that's an interesting and ultimately unsolvable question. I think Trump watches media very carefully, and he wants to know what Limbaugh has been saying. He wants to know what Hannity is saying, what Tucker Carlson is saying on Fox. But I don't think it's entirely true that he takes his cues from them. But I think Trump figured that it would be better for him politically in the end to go with non-mask wearing and non-social distancing. And I don't really think that the conservative media dictated that course. I think he saw the signals, as he usually does. He read the conservative room, as it were, and then he went with his own gut. But you could also say, had he not made that gut-level decision, had he said, 
wait a second, this is not a political issue, this is a science issue or public health issue, and had gone with mask wearing and social distancing, he would have won re-election. You know, I think Trump is unusual among leaders of developed countries in that he didn't receive the rally round the flag boost in popularity that you did see with other leaders who more successfully imposed measures to combat the pandemic. You know, Boris Johnson, for example, who's one of the closer parallels to Trump among uh, Western developed countries, did in fact see his popularity go up significantly as a result of his actions during the pandemic. Although I think his popularity has receded since then. All over the world, we're seeing the devastating impact of this invisible killer. And so tonight, I want to update you on the latest steps we're taking to fight the disease and what you can do to help. So yes, it certainly should have been possible for Donald Trump to have handled the pandemic in a way that would have enhanced his popularity. I think he could have said, yes, let's just go with the science. Let's listen to the experts. We're all in this together. Let's care for each other and get through this. But that's also not in Trump's nature. He hates experts. He hates elites. He has never convincingly called for Americans to unite. His trademark is division. I think he simply saw an opportunity where he could score political points and gain advantage by calling for freedom and, you know, we should not be subject to these restrictions by the people who are imposing upon us and small business owners are going to get crushed by the shutdown and so forth. And uh, I, I just think that some of the governors have gotten carried away. You know, we have a lot of people that don't have to be told to do what they're doing. Well, let's talk a little bit about the role of independence in the 2020 election. It does seem there is a shift towards Biden from independence, maybe especially in those swing states. What do you think swayed them? Was it something Trump said or did? Was it COVID? Or was it something in the Democratic messaging? Well, I think that when it comes to independence, most independents are in fact leaning one way or another. That has been the traditional wisdom. But in fact, I tend to put a higher estimate on independence. I think they do in fact have some kind of capacity to change their minds and to be swing voters and ticket splitters. And I think that's to some extent what happened in this election. Compared to 2016, independents, I think were voting against They were voting against Hillary Clinton. She was a historically unpopular candidate. Donald Trump was also unpopular, but relatively untried and an unfamiliar quantity. When it came to this election, Joe Biden was known and didn't really have extremely high levels of resentment. So yes, this time you really did see a big break of independence in favor of Biden's candidacy or against Trump's, depending on how you want to put that. Okay, then let's turn to the Senate for a moment. As you know, we're located in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, quite near Maine. We followed a very expensive Senate race in Maine very closely where the polls were not very accurate. But now that Susan Collins has won re-election, can she and Lisa Murkowski and a few other moderates exert any influence on the Republican caucus in a closely divided Senate? You know, it's an interesting question, though as to what Susan Collins will be in the Republican Party going forward. She's obviously very out of step with both the Trumpy populists and with the sort of more run-of-the-mill, highly ideological conservatives. But she, Murkowski, and Mitt Romney could actually form a kind of important potential uh, critical swing group in the Senate, given how close the margins are likely to be. 
But on the other hand, you know, this kind of particular football has been pulled away by Lucy to the moderate-leaning Charlie Browns for a long time now. Fair enough. Lucy never did much in moderation. But back to this very perplexing election result. Considering how well Republicans did at virtually every level except the White House, what do you think were the key messages on the Democratic side that turned off swing Republican or independent voters? Well, that's the $64,000 question right now. And in fact, I don't know if you listened in on that conference call that took place among House Democrats shortly after the election, but it was fascinating because you did have a number of the comparatively moderate Democrats blaming their more progressive colleagues for the losses of so many of the relatively moderate Democrats. And we need to not ever use the word socialist or socialism ever we won't know for quite some time what really turned the dial in some of these districts. But, you know, the hypothesis certainly is that in, let's say, majority-minority Hispanic districts like those in South Florida, that tying Democrats to the self-professed socialism of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders was, in fact, important in moving a lot of voters there. Because these are people who either fled from socialist regimes in Central and South America or they have parents or other relatives who did that. that This campaign is not just about electing a president. It is about making a political revolution. Putting in the work, putting in the sweat and the tears to make sure that we bring a working class revolution to the ballot box in the United States. And maybe even the tearing down of statues across the country made them think of the kind of socialist revolutions that they had seen or at least had heard about. Protesters aren't waiting for cities and counties and are pulling down monuments to Confederate history, setting statues on fire. You can also say that maybe the defund the police uh, slogan that so many progressives embraced this past summer proved to be determinative with at least some of these constituents in the swing districts who really do fear a return of the kind of levels of crime that we saw in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. In fact, if you look at the polls of African-American opinion, African-Americans are much more resistant to the defund the police slogan than are white liberals. So it could also be that this slogan backfired with some of the minority constituencies whom white Democratic liberals thought it would please. That's our special guest this episode, Jeff Caviservice. He's the author of Rule and Ruin and director of policy studies at the Niskanen Center. Jeff's breaking down the 2020 election for us. And Emily, again, a lot to unpack in terms of how Trump lost the White House for Republicans. And why independent-minded voters didn't vote Democratic all the way down the ballot, as might have been expected, especially during a recession and a pandemic. And therefore, why some of the messaging that won Democratic primaries did not resonate in the general elections. Former Congressman Jason Altmaier spoke to us in that point in an earlier episode the outlook from dead center. It's all about the way we handle elections in this country. One of the questions I get asked most often when I speak around the country about these issues is why is there so much partisanship in Washington? We don't see that in our neighborhood. Why is that what we're getting in Congress? 
Well, the answer is because we're electing partisans. We have a system that is designed to elect and protect people on the political extreme, on the fringe. And that is because of what happens in our primary process. And unfortunately, it certainly seems like we're just as polarized coming out of the 2020 election as we were going into it. And that's going to make effective government that much more difficult, to say the least. Which is the real tragedy here. I asked Dr. Cabot Service about polarization between and also within the major parties and whether these huge ideological divides suggest any opportunity for a third, more centrist party. You know, in a rational system, or at least a system that's more along the lines of the multipolar, multi-party systems of other countries, we would have at least four different parties, probably more like six. But that's not the system that we have. You know, the witticism of the historian Richard Hofstadter still applies. He said, third parties are like bees. They sting and then they die. They can seize upon an important issue that neither party is really... Uh, taking into account, and they can make one of those two parties take account of that issue, and then that third party tends to die away. But to be honest, I think that the split potential is bigger on the Democratic side, because the Democrats have to cover a wider geographical area, a wider socioeconomic span in a way, and they have to manage a greater diversity of constituencies. The Republican Party's base is in older, mostly Southern white people with a particular appeal to men. And it's simply easier to shape more uniform messages to that kind of constituency. You know, again, that may change given that the Republican Party is now largely a working class party with between 60 and 70 percent of its voters non-college educated. Uh, And, you know, minority groups such as Hispanics and African-Americans are also predominantly working class. Let's go back to the loyalty issue once again. I know it's a small number, but it did seem like during the run-up to the election, there were a few other new anti-Trump or at least not fully pro-Trump voices in the Republican Party. I'm thinking about Liz Cheney in the House and Ben Sass in the Senate. Do you think that represents a generation of people not so happy with their party right now? Spends like a, a drunken sailor. He mocks um, evangelicals behind closed doors. His, his family has treated the presidency like a business opportunity. He's flirted with white supremacists. You know, I think there's actually a lot of people in the Republican Party in Congress who are not happy at this particular moment. I think the job of being a legislator has become much less satisfying for a lot of reasons. And these reasons, some of them predated the Trump era. But I think Trump has made things worse. So I actually, despite what I just told you, do have some hope for moderate Republicans in this forthcoming Congress. But my hopes are more at the level of the House. Because, you know, again, contrary to the pollsters' predictions, what you saw in this past election was almost no Democrats winning in what were thought to be Republican-leaning or toss-up districts. Republicans did extraordinarily well in a lot of these districts where a Democrat had won in 2018, usually turning out a moderate Republican who had previously occupied that district. So I think there's actually an opportunity for people like, let's say, Carlos Jimenez here in Florida, who you know was elected in a Miami-Dade district where he had been mayor, where he had successfully handled the pandemic, where he's interested in issues of climate change and some kind of resolution of the legal status for dreamers. You know, I think there's actually some possibility for him to form a group with other like-minded 
moderate Republicans, and also to work with the center-left faction in the Democratic Party. But again, that remains to be seen. Right. So let's talk a little bit about global warming then. I know that's an important initiative at Niskanen Center. What do you think the Republican reaction will be to the U.S. rejoining the Paris Accords, if that happens, and to other efforts on climate change? I do think it's true that uh, the United States will rejoin the Paris Climate Accords and that there will be Republican reaction against this simply because in our polarized environment, that's what you expect. But I do think that climate change is an issue that actually may have a greater impact on the red states than on the blue states. And Jimenez, for example, comes from an area which is uh, coastal and low-lying, like much of Florida. And this is simply an area that is seeing real estate values take a hit from rising sea levels. And, you know, there's a real tangible physical threat from this phenomenon to property owners and every kind of Republican voter in the state. So at some point, their representatives, I think, are going to have to respond to this danger and work with Democrats to actually try to get some solutions there. The issue, though, is that I don't think there is any room in the current political climate for big, ambitious Democratic solutions such as the Green New Deal. I simply think those things are off the table. If any kind of progress is going to be made, it's going to have to be fairly incremental progress. All right, then let's turn to your recent article, The Future of the Republican Party, which you've written in the publication Persuasion. You sketched out there a couple of scenarios. Could you tell us what you think the most likely scenario is for the Republican Party after this election? You know, my my feeling about the future of the Republican Party is not optimistic for the most part. I think that Trumpian cultural war appeals are going to have a lot of resonance with the base for years to come. And cooperation with the Democrats generally and Joe Biden specifically are going to be regarded with great hostility by many of those voters at the base. So the future does not really hold much in the way of bipartisanship or cooperation or harmony between the parties. But I also think that the Republican Party is likely to muddle through with a mixed Trumpian and plutocratic message and agenda, if that makes sense. That is to say, it's not going to become a genuinely populist party, one that's oriented toward the needs economically, socially, of its working class base. It's not going to be a party that's out there outbidding Democrats for a $2 trillion infrastructure rebuild plan. It's not going to be a party that's taking the lead on how to combat the opioid epidemic, which afflicts so much of heartland America. But its heart is going to continue to be with the agenda of its donor class. It's going to call for tax cuts under all situations. It's going to call for regressive economic measures. It's going to call for cutbacks in the social welfare safety network, even though its own followers depend disproportionately on that kind of social safety network. And it's just going to be a kind of incoherent, muddled party. And if anything, it's going to militate against coherent, functional government. Well, let's hope that's not the case. But given that scenario, if there were one Republican from the past you could bring back to life right now, who you think might make a difference, might steer the party in a more constructive direction, who would that be? Uh, Romney. Not Mitt Romney. George Romney, his father. George Romney was the head of the American Motors Corporation and then became the governor of Michigan 
and was a Republican, was a pretty conservative Republican in a lot of ways, but really believed that the Republican Party was the party of all citizens, that it should be a one nation Republican Party, as opposed to the Democrats, which even then he saw as splitting down into being the party of just different group interests. And George Romney was somebody who launched his presidential campaign by touring some of the most deprived parts of the United States, the inner city African-American ghettos and the worst served areas of Appalachia. And he really believed that the Republican Party should speak to and for these people, that it should come up with policies that could actually improve their lives. We must create genuine equality of opportunity in education, in employment, and in housing. In education, we must work with preschool programs. In employment, emphasize study work vocational training. In housing, zoning that creates either large-scale economic or racial segregation should be eliminated. So, you know, I'm really looking for a kind of figure who can achieve that level of popularity, who can appeal to so many people who don't even now think of themselves as Republicans, who can be persuaded that the Republican Party can actually be a force for progress and change and original ideas in the American solution. So, yes, if I could bring back George Romney right now, I think he would actually have a real appeal to a lot of Americans. That was Dr. Jeff Caviservice, Director of Policy Studies at the Niskanen Center, giving us some much-needed historical perspective on the 2020 elections and polarizing factors in both parties. In future episodes, we'll be looking out for more independent-minded George Romneys from any party, major or minor, who might be able to help bridge the partisan divide, nationally or locally. And if we find them, we'll happily move on to other topics. But for now, partisanship still seems second maybe only to COVID as our national disease. And COVID has vaccines in the pipeline, whereas partisanship is not so easy to cure. But maybe our independent-minded listeners have ideas about how to bridge polarization, restore a more civil society, and a more responsive government. If so, we'd love to hear your suggestions for topics and guests for Season 2 of The Purple Principle, starting early in 2021. Next up, though, we're going to be taking a look at the pretty substantial inaccuracy of polling in the 2020 election with Dr. Brian Schaffner of Tufts University. I think it's not merely a case of what some have called the shy Trump voter syndrome, where people are not willing to admit that they voted for Trump. I mean, that doesn't explain why we're off with Susan Collins in Maine, for example, or why we're we're off in lots of other Senate races. I think it's just that there are some people out there who were just not able to get into our samples in the first place. And it's those people who are very strong Republican supporters that we're not picking up. Join us for that episode, share us on social media, and please send your feedback our way at purpleprinciple.com. This is Robert Pease for the Purple Principle team, Emily Crisetti, Kevin A. Klein, Emily Holloway, and Johnny Dowling. Our original music is composed by Ryan Adair Rooney. Happy holidays to all. Here's to a much better 2021.